U.S. Navy history arriving. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the effervescent Stephen, the XO. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. How's it going today? So, where we last left off, we were in the Western Theater of Operations. We were on the Vicksburg campaigns, and we were just about to start talking about the second campaign of Vicksburg. Does that sound familiar? It sounds very familiar. Almost like we uh, were talking about it just a little while ago. Yeah. So, you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. Alrighty. So, the second campaign. This began in the spring of 1863 and was successful. And is considered Grant's greatest achievement of the war. Ending the war wasn't the greatest achievement? His greatest achievement. Ah. Lots of other people were in the war. You know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Nay, I say millions. <laughs> so he knew he could not attack through Mississippi from the northwest because, you know, he found out that his supply line was vulnerable. And his riverborne approaches had failed repeatedly. So he looked at the dirt roads and saw that, hey, they're starting to dry out. The rainy season and the winter season is not as wet. So we can use them. So he takes the bulk of his army down the western bank of the Mississippi on April 16th. U.S. Navy gunboats and troop transports managed at a very high risk to themselves to slip past the Vittsburg defensive guns and ferry Grant's army across the river to land south of Vicksburg at Bruinsburg. Grant then comes up with two diversions to mask what he intended to do. He made a feint with his General Sherman north of Vicksburg, and he sent a cavalry raid through central Mississippi, which was known as Gerson's Raid, after Colonel Benjamin Gerson. The feint was inconclusive, but the raid was a success. Always a good thing. Gerson was able to draw out significant Confederate forces and pretty much got them spread out across the state. Grant faced two armies in his campaign, the Vicksburg Garrison, which was commanded by Major General John C. Pemberton, and the forces in Jackson, commanded by General John E. Johnston. Good old J.J., who was the theater commander. Now, rather than simply heading north to the city, Grant decides to cut the line of communications between the two Confederate armies. You know, that'll going to help with the uh, not being able to call for reinforcements. His army then quickly goes northeast towards Jackson. And so the history that we know of the campaign says that he cut loose all of his supplies which made Pemberton scratch his head because who would cut 
their supply lines themselves. Pemberton tried to found this out when he tried to cut the supply lines and it was like that's weird where are the supplies i really wanted them i heard there was a nice brush for my hair in there grant instead relied on the local economy to provide him with foodstuffs or food and animals but there was also a constant su supply of ammunition, coffee, hardtack, salt, and other things for his armies coming in on wagons. So Sherman captures Jackson on May 14th, and then they turn west to confront Pemberton in front of Vicksburg. The decisive battle was at Champion Hill, which was pretty much the last stand for Pemberton before he retreated into the entrenchments that were around the city. Grant's army then assaults the Confederate works twice at a huge cost to him. And this was the start of the Siege of Vicksburg. But after these assaults, they just settle in for a, a siege. So, of course, you, as you can imagine, the people being besieged, they, they, they suffered a lot because of, you know the Union bombarding their position. Yeah. And, you know, no food. They had hoped that Gerald Johnston would arrive with reinforcements, but Johnston was also cut off, and he was not aggressive, so he was being cautious. So on July 4th, Pemberton surrenders his army and city to Grant. This happened the day after Robert E. Lee surrenders at Gettysburg. So Vicksburg is considered one of the turning points of the war. By July 8th, after Banks captures Port Hudson, the entire Mississippi River is now in Union hands. And the Confederacy is pretty much split in two. All right, so that is the Vicksburg's campaign. We're going to get into, there should be a few naval battles here. Because rivers, ports, and whatnot. The siege of uh, Vicksburg lasted, what, like a year? Or am I thinking of another Mississippi siege? Maybe it's Jacksonville. Um, The siege of Vicksburg from May 25th to July 4th. So about almost a little over two months. Okay. All right, so first off, I thought, mm, how about we talk about the USS Cairo? Go through her history. We haven't done a boat history in a while. We It has been a while since we've done a boat history. This is true. So this was a city-class ironclad gunboat. She was ordered in August of 1861 laid down in 61, launched in 61 at Mound City, Illinois. Holy crap. That That's a very quick turnaround from order to patrol. Yeah. She was commissioned January 25th, 1862, and she lasted until December 12th of 1862. She was sunk by a mine December 12th, 1862, and raised in 1964 and made into a museum ship. She displaced 512 tons, 
She her length was 175 feet, her beam 51 feet 2 inches, and her draft was 6 feet. She was powered by a steam engine with 22-inch cylinder and a stroke of 6 feet. She was fed by five fire tube boilers at 140 PSI and propelled by paddle wheel. Her speed was four knots. Slow down there. Don't don't go running off too fast. <laughs> she had a complement of 251 officers and men. Her armament was when she was built three eight-inch smooth bores, six 42-pounder rifles, six 32-pounder rifles, and one 12-pounder rifle. And she was then upgraded in November with three eight-inch smooth bores, three 42-pounder rifles, six 32-pounder rifles, one 30-pounder rifle, and one 12-pounder rifle. Okay, that is some serious boom-boom. Her armor... She had a forward casement of two and a half inches. Her pilot house was two and a half inches. She had 60 feet of the side covering the machinery at two and a half inches. And the forward part of the casement sides was three and a half of railroad iron. So Cairo was built in 1861 by James Eads and Company in Mound City, Illinois, under the contract to the United States Department of War. She was commissioned as part of the Union Army's Western Gunboat Flotilla, with U.S. Navy Lieutenant James M. Pritchett in command. Cairo served with the Army's Western Gunboat Flotilla, commanded by Flag Officer Andrew Hull Foote on the Mississippi and Ohio Rivers and their tributaries until transferred to the Navy on October 1st, 1862 with the other river gunboats. She participated in the occupation of Clarksville, Tennessee on February 17th, 1862 and of Nashville, Tennessee on February 25th. She then escorted mortar boats to begin a begin operations against Fort Pillow on April 12th and participated in engagement with Confederate gunboats at Plum Point, Bend, on May 11th. On June 6, 1862, she joined in the triumph of seven Union ships and a tug over eight Confederate gunboats off of Memphis, Tennessee. I think we went over that last episode. Mm-hmm. Where they pretty much sank or captured five gunboats and one escaping. She then returned to patrol on the Mississippi until November 21st when she joined the Yazoo Expedition. And then on December 12th of 1862, she was clearing mines from the river in prepping for an attack on Haynes Bluff in Mississippi where we, she was struck by a mine because I'm translating torpedo to mine for you. And... It was detonated by people hiding behind the riverbank, and she sank 12 minutes afterward. Fortunately, there were no casualties. So, like a lot of the Mississippi theater ironclads, her armament changed over her life, which, you know, wasn't very long to begin with. To get her into service quickly, she and the other city-class ships were fitted with pretty much whatever weapons were available. And then... 
their weapons were upgraded as they became available. So her 8-inch Dahlgren smoothbore cannons were pretty modern. Most of their other original armaments were antiques, you know, like 32-pounders. Or, you know, they were modified, such as her 42-pounders, which were, you know, old smoothbores that had been gouged out to give them rifling. Probably not the safest, because when you do something like that, Mm -hmm. they become structurally weaker and more prone to exploding. Yeah, you, you only want that to be exploding how you want it exploding. Yeah. And, of course, the close confines of river warfare increase the threat of boarding parties, which is why a 12-pound howitzer was put on to address that concern which means it was used to shoot people trying to board instead of regular combat. So over the years after she was sunk, you know, she was pretty much forgotten about and she was slowly covered by silt, sand, mud. So because of this, she became a time capsule, which, you know, actually helped preserve all of her artifacts. So they... They never lost her, so to speak. They always knew where she was. The general area. Uh, Because as the crew members died, the local residents started becoming unsure of the location of the boat. So, you know, the location is forgotten over time. Yeah, yeah. And as the river moves, it deposits stuff on top of her and buries her. Hmm, okay. But also, all that stuff being deposited on top of her preserves her against corrosion and biological degradation. So, a historian named Edwin C. Barris, studying, you know, Civil War maps of the era, decided he was going to search for the ship. And he used metal detectors. So, with the help of two gentlemen named Don Jacks and Warren Grabeau, he found it in 1956. And in 1960, a lot of different artifacts were recovered from the ship, which included the pilot house and a 8-inch cannon. And then with support of the state of Mississippi and the local authorities, the gunboat was eventually salvaged in, in its entirety from the river. I'm going to send you a couple more pictures of what she looks like now. Let's take a look-see. Oh. I mean, a little worse for wear, but... Yeah, unfortunately, she's not in one piece because of the difficulty in extracting her. Because three-inch cables that they were using to lift her out cut very deeply into her wooden hull. So then they just started scrambling to save as much of her as possible. They decided to cut her into three sections, and by the end of December, the remains were placed on barges and towed to Vicksburg. And in the summer of 65, the barges carrying her were towed to Inglis Shipyard on the Gulf Coast in Pasigula, Mississippi. There they removed her armor, cleaned and restored it, and the two engines were taken apart, cleaned, and then reassembled. 
Sections of the hull were braced internally, and a sprinkler system was operated continuously to keep the white oak structural timbers from warping and checking. Then on September 3rd, 1971, the Cairo was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In 1972, the United States Congress enacted legislation authorizing the National Park Service to accept title to Cairo and restore the gunboat for display in Vicksburg National Military Park. Of course, with anything with the government, it takes a long time. And that means that funding didn't come through until June of 1977. And that is when the vessel was transported to the park and partially reconstructed on a concrete foundation near the Vicksburg National Cemetery. A shelter was built to cover her and was completed in October of 1980 with the museum opening in November. They recently replaced the space frame shelter with a tension fabric system to provide better cover. Now, the stuff that they recovered from her revealed weapons, ammunition, naval stores, and personal gear of the sailors who served on board. So everybody can go right now and <coughs> see it at the USS Cairo Museum. She, even though... You know, over time, she suffered degradation due to exposure to the elements, bird droppings, and vandalism. She is still the best-preserved Civil War ironclad. There are only three of them remaining, including the Cairo is also the CSS Nusi and the CSS Jackson. And they predict that pretty soon Cairo will be the only one left because of degradation. So being under the river for so long actually aided in its uh, preservation. I was going to say conservation, but I knew that was the wrong word. Yeah. Though you could say that ironclads are now endangered. They are endangered. There's only three of them left. <laughs> you are absolutely correct about that. So that's the Cairo. Now we're going to get into the Yazoo Pass Expedition. This was a joint operation of Major General Ulysses S. Grant and his Army of the Tennessee and Rear Admiral David D. Porter and his Mississippi River Squadron. Grant's objective was to get his troops into a flanking position against, you know, the Confederate defenders. And this expedition was an effort to bypass the Confederate defenses on the bluffs near this city by using the backwaters of the Mississippi Delta as a route from the Mississippi River to the Yazoo River. Once on the Yazoo, the army would be able to cross the river unopposed, thus, you know, success. Mm -hmm. So the operation would require a pretty deep penetration into enemy territory. This was dominated by water, so cooperation between the Navy and the Army was necessary. You know, the Army needed the Navy be a water taxi. I mean, that is the Navy's job more often than not. Mm-hmm. So the expedition begins on February 3rd, 1863, when they breached a levee on the Mississippi River, allowing water to flow from the river into a former channel. 
that connected with the Yazoo River through a number of other waterways. The fleet passes through the cut into Moon Lake, through the Yazoo Pass on the Coldwater River, and then into the Tallahatchie, which combines with the Yalobusha to form the Yazoo River. And this meets the Mississippi pretty close to Vicksburg. So from the very beginning, it is delayed by obstacles that were, you know, more serious than the Confederate resistance. So forward motion was as little as 10 miles a day. So because this progress was so slow, the Confederate army was able to set up a fort and block passage of the fleet near the town of Greenwood, Mississippi. They, they approached the fort on March 11th, and they were repulsed in a number of gunfire exchanges on three separate days. The army really could not contribute very well because there really wasn't ground, and where there was ground, it was underwater. This is sounding like Island 10 all over again. <laughs> I know, right? So after they were repulsed for a third time, uh, Commander Smith, or Lieutenant Commander Smith, he got sick. So they turned over command to Lieutenant Commander James P. Foster. And Foster and Ross decide that they were going to go back to the Mississippi. They temporarily decided that they were going to go back and try again when they saw that when they got back there there was a whole lot more men waiting for them reinforcements came so they turned around and left again so that's when the entire force is then returned on april 12th and the expedition is pretty much over so that little uh fort that they threw up in a hurry yeah. They pretty much threw it up in like less than five weeks. That's an impressive timetable. Yeah. They put it up there because when they sent out a scouting party, they saw that the terrain near the fort was going to be too marshy to allow infantry to attack, which means it is all going to be attacked by gunboats. Now, not all of the gunboats could participate because the river's pretty much very narrow. I mean, it is a river. So pretty much only two, bo two boats could engage at a time. And so after, you know, they found all this out, they took the, the Chillicothe and the Baron de Kalb in and started a bombardment. Chillicothe got pretty damaged in this exchange when a shell from Fort Pemberton, as it was now called, passed through one of her gun ports while the 11-inch gun was being loaded, striking the shell and causing both shells to explode. Hmm. So it was a double shot with it being one by the with one of the shots being by the enemy. Now, surprisingly enough, the gun itself did not get hurt. At least they're still able to use it. 
in theory. Now, the 14 members of the gun crew, on the other hand, were hurt. That does complicate using the big gun. Yeah, they were they were all either killed or wounded. Now, the other boat, the Baron de Kalb, didn't suffer any real damage because, you know, she was a superior boat in construction and because the Confederate gun crews concentrated their fire on the Chillicothe. Now, the next day, they stayed back and repaired the damage to the gunboats and started, you know, giving them additional armor, which was cotton bales on the foredecks. Smith also brings on a pair of 30-pound parrot guns. He brought one over from his flagship, the Rattler, and the other one from the Forest Rose. He also sends ashore a 12-pound howitzer, and they put that about 800 yards from the fort. In a concealed position, just to, you know, surprise any attackers? Just another position to bombard the fort with. And uh, they shielded the gun with cotton bales covered with dirt. So the two ironclads come back on the 13th. The All three positions open fire, the two gunboats and the mortar position. And again, the Confederate gunners concentrate fire on the Chillicothe. Now, this time she only had three wounded, but the pounding she takes from the enemy artillery damaged a lot of her armor plates and pretty much showed everybody how crappily she was built. Now, the Baron de Kalb, while she didn't take as much fire, she also lost three of her officers and men and three wounded. Now, the rebels didn't go on skate. They lost some men when a shell entered their magazine. While it did not explode, it did set fire to the ammunition ammunition stored there, and the fire killed one and injured 15. So at the end of the day, the fort is basically unscathed, and the gunboats, pretty much mostly the uh, Chillicothe, are badly damaged. And Smith, of course, does not notice that the Confederate fire was slackening towards the end of the day because their ammunition supply is almost depleted. I mean, so your magazine gets hit, it literally goes up in smoke. Yeah. So Smith spends the next couple of days repairing his vessel and landing a 8-inch gun from the Baron de Kalb onto shore. He and Ross then decided to make another assault on March 16th, and they would actually bring the ironclads closer to the fort so they could try to silence its guns better. They're going to advance side by side with a mortar boat slashed between them, and infantry would follow in tin clads behind them, ready to go ashore as soon as the guns in the fort were knocked out. And, you know, where they can find a landing spot? Yeah, yeah, that isn't marshy where the metal sink to chest high. Yeah, this plan almost collapsed immediately because a series of shot and shells hit the Chillicothe's casement. The impact buckled the armor plates in such a way that the gunport stoppers could not be raised. Hmm. Which means she couldn't use her guns. Not really well, no. 
Yeah, so she was forced to retreat. And so Smith was like, you know what? Just pull them all out. So that was, you know, the end of the Union's efforts to get through there. And this is also when Smith realized that his tummy bug was affecting him in such a way that he couldn't command his forces very well. So that's when he gives command over to his exo, the Lieutenant Commander James P. Foster. So Foster and Ross get together and they're like, you know what? Resistance is not futile. We're going to just get out of here. They do not get far when they encounter a group of transports bringing in reinforcements. So this also brings Brigadier General Isaac F. Quinby. Quinby outranks both Ross and Foster. And Quinby orders Ross to turn your butt around, <laughs> get at, get after that fort. And Ross is able to convince Foster to... So they scout it out again. And that's when Quimby figures out what our, Ross has already been trying to tell him. We can't do it. We don't have the supplies, material. They're just going to kick our butts. Yeah, I think they're opting to take that under advisement. Yeah, he's like, we can't get troops on shore, dude. We need both shore parties and the boats. That's And then Quimby receives orders from Grant to go back to the Mississippi because he needed them to do an assault on Vicksburg. So they go back, and that's it. That is the Yazoo Pass Expedition. That's uh, a lot of losing for the Union. That is an awful lot of losing. But you it is going to turn around, one? I'm sure. Oh, eventually. All righty. Um, we're going to go over the Battle of Grand Gulf. All right. This was fought on April 29th, 1863. So Admiral Porter leads seven ironclads in a attack on the fortifications and batteries at Grand Gulf, Mississippi, where he intended to silence the Confederate guns and then secure the area with troops who were with them on transports and barges. They brought seven ironclads to do this with. The attack starts at 0800 and continues to about 1330. During this fight, the ironclads move to within 100 yards of the Confederate guns, and they silence the lower batteries of Fort Wade. Now, the Confederate upper batteries at Fort Coburn remain out of reach, so they continue to fire on them. So, the ironclads and the transports draw off. And after dark, the ironclads go back in and re-engage the Confederate gun. While the steamboats and barges run the gauntlet with their troops. At the same time, Grant marches his men overland across Coffee Point to below the Gulf. And so after the transports had passed the Grand Bluff, they embarked the troops at Dishern's Plantation and disembarked them on the Mississippi shore of Brunsburg, below the Grand Gulf. 
And they immediately start marching to Port Gibson. So, yes, the Confederacy won, but all that happened was Grant made a slight change in his offensive plan. So, I mean, it's a hollow <laughs> victory at most. Right. Congratulations. You did it. It didn't make a difference. Exactly. So, casualty count is... We know that there's 80 on the U.S. side, but we have no idea how many the Confederacy had. All right, so now there's the Battle of Snyder's Bluff. This was fought from April 29th to May 1st, 1863. So to ensure that the troops were not withdrawn to the Gulf Coast or to the Grand Gulf to assist the Confederacy there, a combined Union Army-Navy force faked an attack on Snyder's Bluff in Mississippi. After 1,200 on April 29th, Lieutenant Commander K. Randolph Bressy, with eight gunboats and ten transports carrying Major General Francis Blair's division, started going up the Yazoo River to the mouth of the Chickasaw Bayou, where they spent the night. At 0900 the, the next morning, everybody except one gunboat continued going upriver to Drumgold's Bluff and engaged the enemy batteries there. During the fight, the Choctaw suffered more than 50 hits. Oh my goodness. But no casualties. So at around 1800, the... Troops on the barges, they go ashore and march along Blake's Levee towards the guns. And as they neared Drumgould's Bluff, a battery opens up on them. This creates casualties and havoc. This halts the advance, as you can well imagine. And since this is only a fake attack to create a distraction, after dark, the men get the hell out of there. They they get back on the transports and go to bed. The next morning, other troops get off. I guess they only sent about half of what they had before. So these guys, not having been scared the heck out of the day before, and fresh, they get off and start going through swampy terrain. They get stopped by heavy artillery fire, and they are forced to retreat. That's when the gunboats open fire again at about 1,500. And they actually caused some damage this time. And then as darkness came down, they, you know, stopped firing. You can't hit what you can't see. At this point, Sherman receives orders to land his troops at Milken's Bend, so the gunboats return to their anchorages at the mouth of the Yazoo. And that's the Battle of Snyder's Bluff. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. So next week, we're going to get into the Steel's Bayou Expedition. That is longer, so that's why I skipped over that. But we'll do that, and then after we're done with that, we'll get into Tullahoma, Chickamauga, and Chattanooga campaign. Hmm. So we are going to honor one of our fallen angels with our partnership with hero cards 
we are honoring Engineman Second Class Mark Ian Nito. His hometown was Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. He was stationed on board the USS Cole DDG-67. He received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was October 12, 2000. Killed in action in Aden, Yemen. He was 24. Mark Nito was born on July 25, 1976 in Champaign, Illinois. Moved with his family to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where he attended Goodrich High School. According to his mom, he fell behind in school and was unsure about what he wanted to do with his life after graduation. He wanted to go to college, but the cost was out of reach for the family. He loved repairing machinery and spent his free time restoring a 1980 Chevy Camaro. And when a military recruiter visited his high school, Nito learned that you could sign up to be an engineman in the Navy. An engineman is the men and women who operate and maintain diesel engines. Sounds like something he'd be very interested in. Mm-hmm. He also saw the Navy as an opportunity to pay for college after his service, which is a lot of people do. You can also do college courses while in. A lot of people do that when we when you deploy for your six-month tour. If you're lucky that it's only six months, you can do college classes on board. In November 1994, Nito made the 70-mile trip to Milwaukee and enlisted in the U.S. Navy. A month later, he was assigned to his first choice of schools, Naval Station Great Lakes, located in northern Illinois, just a two-hour drive from home. And he was going to be trained as an engineman. Uh, that's the same place I did my A school. We were right next door to each other. Uh, according to Nito's mother, Sharon Prepke, quote, that was great because he could come home almost every weekend unless he had duty. He would bring all of his buddies home and I would cook for them and we'd have a great time. They were very respectful and would always throw money on the table for groceries for all the food I would cook. They always came home. So after completing basic training, Nito stayed at Great Lakes for training at Surface Warfare Enlisted School Command. Completing the program July 5th, 1995, he was sent to San Diego, California for pre-commissioning training, then to Pascula, Mississippi, where, he's, where he was assigned to the USS Cole DDG-67. The Cole was a brand new guided missile destroyer launched on January 10th, 1995 and commissioned on June 8th, 1996 at Port Everglades, Florida. The ship would be based out of Norfolk, Virginia. In his six years aboard the Cole, Nito's assignments included duties as an engine room operator, responsible for three gas turbine engines and all the equipment that controls them. On his second tour, EN2 Nito was tasked with overseeing the air conditioning and reverse osmosis overseeing the air conditioning and reverse osmosis water purification systems. Shipmates respected Nito for his resolve and determination and credit his sense of humor for breaking up the monotony and confinement of long tours at sea. While on the coal, Nito met shipmate Jamie de Guzman. The two were together for about a year, and other shipmates remarked that they had kept things professional aboard the coal, to the point that their relationship had been virtually undetectable. While in Malta in August of 2000, Nito proposed marriage and the couple began planning for their future. Mark would complete his Navy service in October and planned a job with GE installing generators around the world. The two would marry after Jamie completed her Navy service. 
On the morning of October 12, 2000, the USS Cole was on a brief refueling stop in Aden Harbor, Yemen, when a small boat pulled up along her port side of the ship. Al-Qaeda suicide terrorists detonated the explosive-laden boat. The blast tore a 40-by-60-foot hole in the Cole's hull, killing 17 sailors and wounding 17, and wounding 37 more. Benjamin, second class Mark Nito, and four other crew members in engine room one were killed instantly. Nito was 24 years old and just two weeks away from finishing his Navy service. For 16 months, the coal underwent $250 million in extensive repairs, returning to the fleet at Norfolk to full active duty. The family scattered some of Mark Nito's ashes in his hometown of Fond du Lac in Lake Winnebago. Some were spread at the base of a magnolia tree planted in honor of the lost crew members. The rest of his remains were buried at sea from the deck of the restored USS Cole. A marker in his memory can be found at Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., Section F. Exactly one year after the attack, the USS Cole Memorial was dedicated at Naval Station Norfolk to remember those who gave the last full measure of devotion to their country. To honor her son, Nito's mother had Mark's 1980 Camaro fully restored. She brought it to Norfolk to show his Navy buddies. The car is displayed as a tribute to auto shows nationwide. EN2 Mark DeNito. Thank you. You know, I remember when that happened. I was at Naval Station Great Lakes myself doing uh, my A school when that happened. Yeah, that's the first... uh relatively recent one from my home state that we've covered yeah yeah so xo would you like to take us out yeah absolutely we hope you enjoyed this episode of the u.s navy history podcast if you did please feel free to write a review on whatever podcast app of choice you like to use if you'd like we can even read it on the air for you if you'd like to reach out to us our email is u.s navy history podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to tweet at us, our handle is USN History Pod. If you'd like to converse with us more directly, we do have a Discord channel. You can find the links to that in the show notes. Until next week, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you later, folks. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-